Michael Rothstein, we're here to talk about a woman who is a boxer and a humanitarian and an author and a model and someone who's about to make history this week with a fight that we'll talk about in just a moment. But I wanted to start the story of Ramla Ali with a simple question. How old is she? Pablo, she actually doesn't know. And that is because she is a Somalian refugee. Ramla Ali was a baby, and she and her family left Somalia way back in the early 1990s. When they left, they didn't take any of the documents with them. They were concerned about fleeing for their lives and their safety, not making sure they had every paper and every birth certificate. So Ramla, her brother, they don't know how old they are. Their best guess is that she was born in 1989. She'll get bits and pieces from family members. They'll be like, oh, this cousin was born six days before you were born. So maybe you were born on a Tuesday, or you might have been born in November or April. There's no real concept for her of understanding when her actual birthday is. When I was sitting with Ramla, and we were actually driving around Los Angeles in their gray Honda Civic. Her husband was driving. Ramla and I were in the back seat, just kind of chatting for a few hours. She called it Western privilege to have a birthday that you know and to celebrate birthdays like that. Mm. And I had never thought of it like that. Same. It's another thing that I've always thought is like a Western privilege to know the day that you're born to be able to celebrate it. It's like you just, you don't know what you're really celebrating. Really? Yeah, but is it is it the day? Yeah. No, because it's a made up day. Yeah, I imagine that at some point it also just gets very old to constantly be asked this question that you don't actually know the precise answer to. Oh, it, it does. And she rolled her eyes the first time, but she also knew it was coming. And she has a standard line for it. And she has this when she's making a joke, she has this loud guttural, like almost a cackle. Has that been an, an, a, an odd thing for you, not knowing how no, old you are? because I just tell everyone I'm 21 all the time. Oh, well, that, I mean, that, <laughs> that, 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 that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, it's odd, not knowing. All of it just to say, Michael, that underneath all of those jokes is this life that in boxing is incredibly unique. Without a doubt, she's a boxer. She's a model. She's a humanitarian who has traveled abroad working with UNICEF. She created a nonprofit for women in London to learn self-defense and to learn boxing in safe spaces. And oh yeah, by the way, on Saturday... She is fighting Crystal Garcia Nova beyond the undercard of the Alexander Yusik anthony Joshua heavyweight title fight. And she is going to become one of the first women to box professionally in Saudi Arabia, which for her is a huge deal because she's also Muslim. All those things, Pablo, do lead back to one place. And it leads back to the place that she doesn't remember. She has no recollection of and has not been to since she was a baby, which is Somalia. 
Hundreds of thousands of people have fled Somalia over the last three decades, desperately searching for safety after a horrific civil war. Destabilized the country and sparked ongoing political debates across America and Europe about borders and resettlement and whether foreign refugees should get to enjoy Western privilege. Ramla Ali, a featherweight with a pro boxing record of 6-0, was one of those refugees. And this weekend, she's about to become yet another kind of pioneer. So today, we tell the story of how Ramla Ali got here and what's really at stake once the bell rings on Saturday. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Friday, August 19th. This is ESPN Daily. So, Michael, we'll get to the fight in Saudi Arabia in a little bit here. But I want to get to know Ramla better first because her journey as an athlete, I mean, I have heard many, many life stories doing this job. I have never heard one quite like hers. What does she know about her own childhood? So in terms of Somalia and her journey from Somalia to London, the only things she knows are things that her relatives, her parents, her uncles have told her. She has no memory of anything. She knows that she was born in Mogadishu, which is the capital of Somalia, in either the late 80s or 1990s, in the middle of a brutal civil war. We're at the airport in Mogadishu, Somalia. Just as our plane came in at the end of this runway, there was a firefight. It's just an indication of how much chaos and anarchy, how much uncertainty there is in a country with no government, no police force, lawless society. About a third of the 400,000 civilians who fled Mogadishu earlier this year amid clashes between government forces and Islamic insurgents have since returned. But the security situation has failed to improve, and in July, Violence once again sent thousands back on the road. And she knows her parents worked. They owned a fabric store. Now, the reason that they fleed Somalia is because one of her brothers, Abdul Qadir, insisted that he went to play outside. And at that point in Somalia, you didn't go outside. The parents had closed their shop. Schools had closed. Children didn't go outside. He insisted, and I mean, this is just tragic, a grenade lands in their garden and blows up and severely injures Abdul Qadir. Roads are not all that functional in Somalia at this time. So her father, uncle, they put Abdul Qadir in a wheelbarrow to take him to the hospital where he does not survive. That kind of became the impetus to say, okay, we need to flee. We need to leave Somalia to find something else. It's the bravest decision because Somalia is the only home my parents have ever known. And for them to decide, look, we're going to leave everything we've ever known behind for something unknown on a, on a chance that it could be good. And I think there's a lot of bravery in that because I don't think it's something that I would ever do. After her older brother's death, how does the family develop a plan to escape? Where do they go? They took a van to Kismayo, which is a port city in Somalia, and they thought they'd be there a few days. 
They were there for at least a month. They ended up sleeping in a storage facility with mattresses on the floor. Again, Ramla remembers none of this. Her parents found jobs really quickly to try and raise money to get on a sailboat to Kenya. That sailboat to Kenya was overcrowded. It had dirty water, no food. But they eventually get to Mombasa. And when they get to Mombasa, there's a little bit of stability there. But it takes about a year for them to work to get the money that they need for travel, get the money they need for fake Kenyan passports. And then that eventually will get them to the United Kingdom, where they landed at Heathrow. And it was the coldest they'd ever been in their lives Hmm. because they were landing in November 1992. And it's winter in England, and that's not anything that you experience in Somalia or Kenya. They're taken into a flat in Paddington in London. They apply for asylum. And they're there for about six months while they wait for their application for asylum to be approved or not approved. And it was approved. And then they move into public housing in East London. And that is where Ramla Ali grows up, a couple of different places in East London. The first memory I think I have was when I first started uh, school in the UK. And I remember like a kid wanting to play with me. I was on the slide, kid wanting to play with me, but I didn't know how to communicate. So they make their way from civil war in Somalia to Mombasa, Kenya, to London, England. And... Michael, I'm trying to wrap my head around the culture shock, the weather shock of going from Somalia to London and settling and starting a new life there. What was that like for Romland or family? Well, eventually they settled in and they started decorating their home and they started living a life like one would think. Now, listen, they didn't have a lot of money and that's probably not a surprise. They're in a community that's filled with a lot of Bangladeshi, Pakistani, Indian people. But also throughout all this, she doesn't really advertise that she is also a refugee. Mm. Like that's something that she just does not want to talk about as she's growing up because already she's trying to figure out her place as so many kids do. At this point, where does boxing fit into the story, Michael? Did she have any experience at all with the sport? No, she had no experience at all with the sport. And she actually found out about the sport because her brother was watching a fight on television. I believe it was an Amir Khan fight. And she saw it and she was really intrigued, but it was not anything she thought of necessarily doing. Then her sister, Faiza, gets engaged. There's a video camera around and... What happens eventually is she sees herself on camera and she doesn't really love what she sees. That really gave her the impetus and pushed her to get in shape. And the best way to get in shape is to go to a gym and change her diet. So she signs up for a boxer size class. The first time she goes, she books in the window. She does not go in. A week later, she goes back. Her best friend from childhood goes with her. They go in and obviously she doesn't know this at the time, but her life's about to change all because she goes in this boxer size class because she wants to get into shape. What about boxing does she take to immediately? She really loved the ritual of hand wrapping. And that was, I think, one of the first things that 
she took two. Then after that, it was just kind of everything. It was that it's not something that's easy. The hitting the pads, the hitting the bags. It seemed like she really got into everything with boxing to the point where eventually she sought out more serious boxing classes at another gym in England. And that's really where her journey begins, but also really where her secret begins. Yeah, I mean, the secret, Michael. What did her family think of her love affair with this sport? They did not know. And they did not know for a long time. So she starts boxing in secret because in Muslim culture, and at least how her family believed it in Muslim culture, boxing was not something that women should do. So for her doing it was really tricky. And so she hid it from everybody. And she did this for a few years and she got really good. She started fighting amateur fights. She started winning amateur titles. She fought in youth national championships, but she would get dropped off a block away from home and then walk home. If she had bruises, she'd say she fell. If there was a bruise on her face, she'd wear sunglasses inside. Like she did everything she could to basically hide that she was boxing, even though you would think that in boxing, it's really hard to hide these things, but she did. It seems especially difficult, Michael, in the age of the internet. Yeah, it is. But also remember the internet of 2014, 2013, 15, 16, when this is going on, was not the internet of today. So eventually what happens is she does join Instagram like so many people in the world. But what she does, Pablo, she immediately blocks her family on Instagram. Mm. So they can't find her. They can't know that she's there. And she's basically just posting things as she wants and being smart about it. So what is she trying to accomplish here as she is living this secret double life? What's on her list of goals? Well, at that time, it was fight for England. Maybe make the Olympics for Great Britain. Now, obviously, at that point, I think that secret would be out, right? But she was going to try and keep it as long as she could. I used to think, how how on earth am I going to get to the Olympics without my parents finding out? (laughs) Is what always used to go through my head. And that was the goal. But... It just didn't happen. She did fight for England in certain competitions, but she just never got the call from the English national team, even though she had represented them in other competitions. And so with this dream of representing her adoptive country, England, in the Olympics just over now, Michael, where does Ramla Ali turn to next? So at this point, Ramla Ali and her husband, Richard Moore, they met in 2016. They got married soon after that. He's her coach. He's her manager. They do everything together as a team to this day. They sit there and they say, well, there's another country that is very important to Ramla that has a big piece of her heart, even though it's a place, again, she has no recollection of and also has no discernible boxing history, especially for women, and that's Somalia. 
And what she's going to try and do is she's going to try and box for Somalia and get to the Olympics. After the break, Ramla Ali figures out exactly what that takes. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. So, Michael, this plan to fight for Somalia, representing this country that Ramla has no personal memory of, it begs the question of what exactly is the history of boxing in Somalia to begin with? There is not much of one, Pablo, especially for women, because as we were talking about before, in Muslim culture, boxing is not something that women do. So there really was no culture. There was no federation. So Ramla and Richard have to set about creating a federation on their own. They have no experience doing this. How many people have experience creating a complete Olympic federation for a sport? (laughs) Like, that's a small, small number, and certainly they didn't have it. So practically speaking, how does one go about setting up a boxing federation? They were kind of flying by the seat of their pants in trying to figure it out. They knew they needed Somali passports. They knew they needed international coaching licenses and certain licenses for Richard Moore. So he had to go and take tests. They knew they needed to find training partners at which they got help from other countries. And they knew they needed money. So they're using a little bit of their own funds. Rommel has a second job. She works at a Virgin Active, which is a gym in Great Britain. Richard has a job and eventually they realized, you know what, we need more. And part of the way that they did that and part of the way they wanted to get attention to kind of push things forward because they were hitting a lot of roadblocks was Ramla decided that she was going to tell her story. She found a Somali TV station and she sat down with them and she started to tell her story. I'm hoping to compete for Somalia um, to be the first boxer, male or female, to compete for Somalia, hopefully, inshallah, and represent Somalia in the 2020 Olympics, which would be great. And she started to say, I want to get to the Olympics and I want to represent Somalia. But obviously doing so means that thing we talked about before, the secret, which is still going on, might not be a secret much longer. What happened when her family found out? So her uncle saw the interview on Dalsor, which is a Somali television and YouTube station. And her uncle actually talked with her parents and helped smooth things over. And at that point, one of the other things that the Somali television journalists had told them was, don't ask for permission, just do it. And Ramla and Richard bought into that. And Ramla said to me, quote, fake it till you make it. So 
What they did was they actually fought in two small tournaments under the Somali banner. There ended up being no backlash for them on this because they were relatively small tournaments. But going to the tournament in Denmark, her mom calls and her mom says, who do you fight? I hope you win. I'm going to be praying for you. And that to her was essentially saying, I support you. And that for Ramla meant everything. And so this young woman who, again, has no memory of Somalia, who's too young to remember fleeing the country as a refugee, she sets on this path to represent the country. And she starts in the process, Michael, this movement that you write about, a movement in a sport that women from her country weren't even supposed to be competing in. For sure. And that's something that she started to feel. And she told me a little bit about the World Championships. And this was in New Delhi, India. In the World Championships, she saw Somali flags and she sees and hears chants. And it, it almost brings a tear to her eye because she's like, these people know who I am and they're supporting me. There was a lot of people that came out to watch, a lot of Somalis that just decided to come watch me compete. You're competing for a country you know nothing about, but the support, the overwhelming support that you get like, people don't treat you as an outcast because you don't live there or you have no memory of there. They just see you as one of them. And that's that's an amazing feeling. What does Ramla decide to do with all of that support as she has experienced it? She decides to start a nonprofit. And she didn't know how it was going to go. It's the first class had seven people, but it's called the Ramla Ali Sisters Club, or just in short, the Sisters Club. And it was a safe space for a women's only boxing class for what was initially supposed to be only Muslim women in London to learn how to box with or without a hijab in a completely safe space. Something that she did not experience but would have loved to have experienced when she had started boxing. The support was overwhelming to her. The amount of people who were interested, and it wasn't just Muslim women, it was survivors of domestic violence. It was women who just felt unsafe. It's a great way for me to use my platform for good and to allow vulnerable groups, give them the opportunity to gain access to sport. These boxer size classes now are so expensive. And a lot of the women that come to Sisters Club can only do so because it's free. And all of a sudden, this group, which is to her, of all of the things that she has done in her life, one of the most rewarding goes from something that's of seven people to now there's over 300 women in their WhatsApp group chats. There's classes in every quadrant of London. Her sister, Lul, who she once shared a room with, she is now helping run the Sisters Club, especially because Ramla has since moved from London to Los Angeles almost full time. It has become something that is incredibly rewarding. And both Ramla and Lul told me separately that they believe it's changed some lives. Meanwhile, what about her original dream? What about the Olympics? The Olympics, you know, COVID happens, right? So the 2020 games become the 2021 games. And Ramla Ali qualifies for them. So Ramla Ali is going to the Olympics. She's the first woman boxer to fight for Somalia. And she also ends up being the flag bearer for Somalia in the opening ceremonies. But 
Richard gets sick while they're at the Olympics. And the thing with the 2020 or 2021, rather, Olympic Games was if you left the Olympic Village, you were disqualified. They didn't think to ask for an exemption. And they almost left because Richard was really ill. And he's her trainer. He's her coach. Again, her husband. Richard insists they stay. Rommel is distracted all week. They can barely train. They're actually doing workouts in a parking garage at one point. But Rommel goes to the opening ceremonies. She fights in the Olympics. Now, she loses in her opening match. So it's a one-and-done thing for her. And actually, it's something that bothers her. After all of that, she doesn't really like talking about the Olympics. I never mentioned the Olympics. I just don't feel like it was a true account of my abilities. I thought I boxed terribly. It's not even, like, everyone's even put it in their Instagram bio, Olympian. Yeah. I didn't, because it's, it's, it's just something that I don't like talking about. And so Ramla Ali is embarrassed by her Olympic performance. She is embarrassed in the way that any elite athlete who feels like she is better than she's shown would feel. And so where does she channel all of those emotions, Michael? After the Olympics, she focuses solely on her professional boxing career. We're looking at her now. She can box, right? She can box. It's a very tidy box, and she's putting on a hell of a display here at the moment. Here's a nice combination by Ali, working behind the jab, having success with the right hand. She is still undefeated as a pro. For your winner, by unanimous decision, she's still undefeated, Ramla Ali. She got to fight in London. Her siblings went. The Sisters Club went in July. And that was her last fight. And now she's going to be fighting again on Saturday in a fight that is a first for many reasons and is a really big deal for her. She's fighting in Saudi Arabia as a Muslim woman. And it's the first professional boxing match for women in Saudi Arabia, it's on the undercard of a heavyweight title fight. This is a massive, massive deal, Pablo. When we return, Ramla Ali's next act begins. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with the smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Delicious meat nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot. 
taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. So, Michael, if you zoom out and you look at the arc that Ram Ali's life has taken, it's increasingly surreal. Where are we now in this trajectory exactly in terms of her life even outside of boxing? Outside of boxing, it's it's kind of wild in a lot of ways. So what happens is her story becomes public. Nike sees it, is interested in her. She does a panel. She starts doing some things for Nike. And when they first met with Nike, all they wanted was gear because, you know, they're struggling to get the Somali Boxing Federation off the ground and, and you know, make ends meet. More people see her story through Nike. IMG Models sees her story, meets with her, decides they want to represent her, and things start to really get big from there in 2019. She ends up modeling for Amanda Wakely, which is a pretty big fashion designer. Cartier and Dior end up interested in her. Coach ends up interested in her. And then she gets a call from British Vogue. A guest editor wants to include her in their September 2019 issue called Forces of Change. Jane Fonda is going to be in this issue. Greta Thunberg's going to be in this issue. The editor of the issue, it's Meghan Markle. She's made all of these connections in this world that five years ago would have seemed very foreign to her. But it goes back to even her childhood when she was an immigrant, a refugee into the UK. It's about representation. And this is something that she told me. Representation is very important to me. I always say you can't be what you can't see. You need to be able to see it in order to believe it. Ramla Ali has created that in so many ways for so many people throughout probably the last 10 years of her life. And so this decision, this conscious decision to live an explicitly public life now, Michael, this is all cresting this weekend, right? Because this weekend in Saudi Arabia, she's going to be on this pay-per-view card fighting Crystal Garcia Dova on the undercard of the Anthony Joshua heavyweight title fight. And Saudi Arabia, let's be very frank about this, has been in the news a lot recently, right? I mean, this is an authoritarian regime that has faced accusations of sports washing, most recently in golf with the whole Live Tour storyline that we've been covering on this podcast where they're using sports to distract from their human rights record. It's a country that has been very repressive to women in particular, what is Ramla Ali's attitude towards all of this as her role in this fight is concerned? You know, I asked her that because I was very curious as well because of everything that she seems to stand for. And the way she put it to me is that this is a monumental thing to have happened because this shows progress. It's such a monumental thing to happen in Saudi. Me and uh, my opponent, we're essentially making history together. It provides hope to so many women. It provides hope to loads of little girls as well, looking up to us and knowing that they can do and they can be and they can achieve anything that they want. So it's, you know, it's a fight that's just bigger than me and my opponent. 
there's a lot here that can be built on, they're hoping. Although, I'll be honest, she has no idea what the reaction is going to be on Saturday mm. when she walks out. That's one of the things that she's curious about is how that's going to go. And I don't think anyone really knows that answer until, you know, Saturday evening over there, Saturday afternoon over here. So Ramla has kind of said a couple other things to me as well in terms of this. The first is that by doing this, this actually shows her mom that she did the right thing all along. That she's fighting in Saudi Arabia, which is such a big deal in Muslim culture because Mecca is there and that is the holy city for Muslims. And she's hoping while she's over there to be able to go to Mecca. Saudi Arabia is Mecca. You know, is where we, we do our pilgrimage, is where we, you know, we go to Hajj. Being a Muslim and, you know, being able to compete in Saudi, yeah, it means a lot. It, <laughs> I mean, I, I said to my mom, I'm going to kill two birds with one stone after the fire. I'm going to go to Hajj and do Umrah, um, which she's always wanted me to do. And so, yeah, um, <laughs> it's great. So, Michael, when you look at this in the biggest picture sense, how much is riding on this fight for Ramla Ali? Well, I mean, in a boxing sense, there's what's always riding on the fight. You win, your profile keeps growing, you have maybe more of a chance at a title shot down the road, all of those typical boxing things. But I think it's about more than that. It's about the impact that you can have. And Ramla Ali has had such an impact beyond boxing. And I think that's shown best in London because in the Bethnal Green area where she spent the majority of her childhood, there is a massive three-story mural on the side of a building. And this thing can be seen from a block away. I was in London this summer on vacation and wanted to go and see it. And I had a friend with me and he knows nothing about boxing. And he was like, is that it? And we were literally a block <laughs> to a block and a half away. That's how big this thing is. It's this giant mural of her face with a yellow background. It says, choose courage on the top of it. And I think it shows the type of impact that she has made. And to her, it's so much about the story that she for so long didn't want to tell. There's been a lot of firsts for me. Yeah. You know, I was the first... Muslim to win a national title. I was the first Somali to go to the World Championships. I was the first Somali to qualify and compete at the Olympic Games. Um, the first Somali woman to become a professional. But like, there's just been so many firsts for me. And, you know, sometimes it is quite scary to be, to, to you know, when nobody else has done it before. But I feel like you need to be brave and I need to show them that <clears throat> it's okay to be a first um, because loads of others will follow behind you. It sounds like the concept of the refugee, Michael, is one that she is trying to represent as well. Well, yeah, because she is one. I mean, at the end of all of this, everything that she's done in her life starts with that she was a refugee from Somalia. 
She still doesn't know how old she really is. She probably never will. Her family traveled across multiple countries when she was a child, a baby, to get to a better life. That is Ramla Ali's story. And everything else that came after is in part because of that story. And that's why her story matters and her story resonates as much as it does with people when they hear it. Michael Rothstein, thank you for bringing us this story. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily. And our show is produced by Bradford Craig, Alexander Hyacinth, Mike Johns, Heather Lombardo, Ryan Nantel, Mike Philbrick, Andy Tennant, Chris Tuminello, and Aaron Vale. Special thanks this week to Andre Soto, Jason Costura, Deontay Epps, and Jackson Agelo. I'll talk to you Monday.